This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the question, um, how can I be happy? And this is perhaps one of the oldest questions that humans have been asking. How can I be happy? There's a 2006 Will Smith movie called The Pursuit of Happiness. And the movie's answer to that question was success. If you live a successful life and you make a lot of money, then you'll be happy. This summer, Arthur Brooks, who um, is a professor now at Harvard, and he is uh, considered a happiness expert, he wrote an article for The Atlantic called Why Success Won't Make You Happy. And in this article, he outlines how success operates similarly to a drug, um, in that when you pursue success, when you pursue achievement, it actually makes your life, everything outside of that, dull and lifeless, not leaving room for the things that actually make you happy. Um, so success actually doesn't, achievement doesn't actually lead to happiness. And now as we're, we're getting close to the one year anniversary of COVID, um, which is crazy, one year anniversary, I don't know if anyone has considered giving COVID a gift, anniversary present, horrible, uh, it's been a horrible year. Uh, as we're hearing this, heading towards one year, um, stats are coming out on how horrible this year has been for mental health especially for people your age, for y'all, that young people have been hit really hard by uh, depression and anxiety and panic attacks and just the isolation that has come and the, the listlessness and just being detached from everything. You know this. You've lived it for the past year. And it makes one of the oldest questions, um, this question, how can I be happy, uh, one of the most relevant questions right now in the midst of this. How can I, how can you actually be happy? This is the question that we're taking up tonight as we study the book of Habakkuk together. Habakkuk. So this semester we're reading the Minor Prophets, and the Minor Prophets are these 12 books at the end of the Old Testament. They're called minor not because they're insignificant, but because they're short. And we're reading through them together, and we're taking one each week, and we're studying it, and we're talking about the prophet's book, and then we're, we're focusing in on a key passage or two. And the reason that we're studying the Minor Prophets together is because they are life-challenging. They can actually change the way we live. And they're, they're graphic. The Minor Prophets, they contain both the scariest warnings and also the sweetest and most beautiful promises in the whole Bible. And they function like these, these quick, vivid snapshots. They're not long, drawn-out documentaries, but they're these quick little snapshots. And that's why we're calling our series Postcards from the Edge. And when we get to some of the more difficult parts, I want you to remember that all of the Bible contains God's word for us. Writing about the Old Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Now these things happened to them, referring to the ancient Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. This means that the minor prophets aren't just a history lesson about other people's lives, but they exist to teach us how to live. And so far this semester, we've looked at the book of Jonah and Hosea and Amos, and this week we're looking at the book of Habakkuk. Who was Habakkuk? Other than having a really sweet name, um, we don't know much about Habakkuk. He lived and wrote in the late 600s BC, probably as late as 605 BC, 
And to give you some historical context for what's going on in the world then, um, King David, who wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible, he united the 12 tribes of Israel under his leadership um, around 1000 BC and was king over all of ancient Israel. And then in about 930 BC, Israel split into two kingdoms. In the north, it was called the kingdom of Israel, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, And then in 722 BC, Assyria, which was the the capital, the headquarters of Nineveh, or it was headquartered in Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And King Josiah um, was a, a king. He was the last good king in the southern kingdom. He died around 609 BC. So, and then Babylon conquered Jerusalem in the southern kingdom in 586 BC. So you've got these events happening where Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, then you've got King Josiah, and then Babylon comes and conquers um, the southern kingdom. And Habakkuk is written right after Josiah and right in about 20 years before Jerusalem falls. And so Josiah was the last good king. He was, he was kinged as an eight-year-old, and he found the book of the law had been lost for years. And reading it, he read it to the people, and they discovered who God was and the things that he required of his people. And it led to this really beautiful, flourishing time under his leadership. And then after he died, um, the people became disillusioned. They started doing whatever they want. They gave up on God. And the result was uh, just an, an age that was full of evil on the edge of destruction. Um, and this is when Habakkuk... Is, is working. This is when he's a prophet. And the question that he takes up in his book is, how can I be happy? In the face of all of the chaos and uncertainty and evil in the world, how can I be happy? How can I have and sustain real happiness in the midst of my circumstances, despite my circumstances? This is the question that Habakkuk asks. And in the book, we're given God's answer. And it's a short book. It's only three chapters And it records this back-and-forth conversation between Habakkuk and God. We get these complaints from Habakkuk. He sees the evil and the wickedness of the people around him, um, and he complains to God, and then God responds. So tonight, we're going to read a section from the very beginning of the book, and then we're going to read the section from the very end of the book. Um, So I'm going to read Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 8, and then uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And I think, are you going to put that up on the, there it is, it's on the screen. Magic. Okay. Habakkuk 1, verses 2 through 4, and then chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. This is Habakkuk complaining to the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then chapter three, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the, of the olive fail, and the fields yield no, fru- no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. 
He makes me tread on, the, on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what I want us to see tonight as we look at this is whatever your circumstances, whatever life throws your way, true happiness can be yours. And Habakkuk shows us that true happiness comes through being in direct contact with the living God. And this happens by remembering God's goodness, by rejoicing in God's goodness, and by resting in God's goodness. So first, remembering God's goodness. Habakkuk begins with this line, O Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help and you will not hear? And this cry, how long? It's a really honest cry, isn't it? It's, it's just this, this exasperation of being tired of waiting. How long, O Lord? And this cry, how long, is on the lips of God's people 59 times in the Bible. And then we see in the New Testament, Jesus actually cries this himself five times. How long? It's a common longing. And you get this. How long? When is it going to be better? When are things going to go back to normal? When, when will my anxiety stop? When will injustice end? When will this suffering be over? When will my family stop fighting? How long? And at the end of the book, we see this curious turn. In chapter 3, verse 17, Habakkuk lays out the absolute worst-case scenario. He says There's, there could be no figs on the fig trees, no grapes on the grapevine, no olives on the olive trees, no animals in the fields or the stalls. He's saying absolutely no food, no economic production, complete and utter famine. For us, the equivalent would be no power. All the cell phone towers are out. No grocery stores have food for the entire summer. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. And then in verse 18, he says, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So how does he get there? How does Habakkuk get from this angry, confused, frustrating how long to laying out this litany of the worst case scenario and saying, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And the answer is that he remembers God's goodness. Chapter 3, up until what we read, is this rehearsal of God's goodness. It's a poetic retelling of all that God has done to save his people. Habakkuk recounts the story of Moses delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he remembers the story of Joshua leading God's people into the promised land. But in this poetry, in in chapter 3, Moses' name and Joshua's name are conspicuously absent. In fact, Habakkuk doesn't give them any credit at all. Instead, he gives all of the credit to God, that it was the Lord who saved Israel from their slavery and brought them into the promised land. And it was the Lord who fought their battles and conquered their enemies. And what Habakkuk's doing here is that he's showing us that the way for us to be happy is to remember God's goodness, to remember God's goodness to us. And we remember things by repetition. You know this. I mean, think about the way you learn anything. The time you spent shooting baskets in your driveway or the time you spend on the, on the driving range working on your shot or the time that you spend in the batting cage, time you spent practicing your scales. We know this, that in order um, to remember something, to learn something with our bodies, we have to repeat it. The same way, in order to remember something in our minds, we, we have to repeat it. Um, the way that you're going to remember God's goodness to you is through repetition. So that can look like reading God's promises and remembering them, studying the Bible, listening to good sermons, praying the Lord's Prayer, reading the Psalms, doing this alone, doing it together, um, starting a Bible reading plan, listening to the Bible. The Bible app has the ability to listen to it. 
um, watching videos from the Bible Project, reading devotional books, just finding ways to have repetition of God's goodness to you. Uh, Find preachers who are committed to helping you remember God's goodness and listen to them. For me, it's my pastors here at Redeemer, um, listening to them each week, and then it's on podcasts. um, Two in particular, Tim Keller and Brian Habig, are pastors who have helped me tremendously in seeing and remembering God's goodness to me. Now, I just gave you a lot of stuff, and I'm not saying do it all right away. Do a few things and then repeat. So if, for example, you currently don't read the Bible at all, Start by reading and praying one time, one time a day. If you do it once a day, try it twice a day. And before you dismiss me for being legalistic and telling you what, what to do, um, repetition is the only way that we remember anything. The way that you're going to remember God's goodness is by getting yourself in front of it over and over again. This is how you build any habit. I mean, this is what we do with our phones how many times did you check your phone today? This is really embarrassing. I was, I was, I need to see this. So I opened the screen time thing and I checked my average. I look at my phone on average 85 times a day. I don't do anything 85 times a day. That's an insane, I think it's actually, everyone's probably checking their phone. How much, how much should I check? Um, I don't even have social media or email on my phone and I check it 85 times a day. Y'all, you can read the Bible a few times a day. That's the point of that. Um, Tim Keller says this. He says, if we want to get in contact with God directly, you must do repetition. Practicing it again, praying daily, two times a day, three times a day. He says this. He said, why do we have four gospels? The repetition shows us Jesus over and over again from these different perspectives. Because we as humans, God knows this about us, that we have a need for repetition. Um, So Keller encourages us to memorize Bible verses, to engage in regular prayer. We are creatures who work through habit. And this is not just to be done alone. I just gave you a lot of things to do alone, but this is not just alone. A few years ago, uh, I think it was like seven, seven or eight years ago, um, I was going through a, a season of mild depression, and I told my wife, Mary Clark, I said, I'm afraid, I was starting to enter in, and I could feel that I was entering into it. And I said, I'm afraid I'm going to go into a dark place, and I'm going to forget God's goodness to me. And if I get there, I need you to tell me true things about who God is. And I got there, and one night as we're going to bed, I I said to her, Mary Clark, I need you to tell me who God is. I need you to remind me of his goodness. Remind me of the true things about Jesus and his grace. And she did, and she got me through that dark night. So a question for you, do you have friends who remind you of the goodness of God? Do you have friends who do this for you? And on the flip side, do you do this for your others? Do others come to you because you're full of reminders of God's goodness? Friends, we need this desperately. If you don't have someone who does this for you, ask someone. Ask someone to do this for you. So we remember God's goodness, and then true happiness is found in rejoicing in God's goodness. The secret of true happiness is found in rejoicing, not in our circumstances, but in God's goodness. Um, In the 16th century, John Calvin wrote this big book to teach Christians. It's called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And I don't know what you've heard or what you think about John Calvin. Uh, When I was in college, I'd been taught that he was a killjoy and he wasn't worth my time. But then when I started to actually read him for myself, what I saw was, well, um, listen to this. This is is from the, the Institutes of Christian Religion. It's from a section entitled, Certainty About God's Providence Puts Joyous Trust Towards God in Our Hearts. That was written in the 16th century. 
I'll say it again. Certainty about God's providence puts joyous trust towards God in our hearts. And he writes this. A person of faith's comfort is to know that their heavenly father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom that nothing can happen except what he determines. Moreover, it comforts them to know that they have been received into God's safekeeping and entrusted to the care of his angels and that neither water nor fire nor iron can harm them, except insofar as it pleases God as governor to give them occasion. Thus, indeed, the psalm sings, and then he quotes from Psalm 91 that says this, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. How can you have this never-failing assurance? Only from knowing that when the world appears to be aimlessly tumbled about, the Lord is at work everywhere, and from trusting that his work will be for your good. Here's what Calvin's saying about happiness. Calvin is saying that through direct experience of God, we'll have happiness. Getting direct contact with God, rejoicing in his goodness, that's where true happiness is. But we have a problem because our problem is that we often have inferred enjoyment of God. As one pastor puts it, uh, an inferred enjoyment of God means that we enjoy God through the good gifts that he gives us. So our our experience of enjoyment of God, um, we enjoy God through the good things he gives us, like family or friends or warm clothes, roof over our heads, food, material possessions, the strength in our bodies, our physical health, anything that we're thanking God for, that's how we experience him, through his gifts. And we receive these gifts from God as we should. They are gifts, and, and we enjoy God through them. But that's an inferred enjoyment. It's not direct. And so what ends up happening is our, our enjoyment of God is tied to our circumstances. We enjoy God because of the good thing he gives us, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But what's going to happen when your circumstances change? So the question is, how do you have a happiness that's independent from your circumstances? A happiness that is safeguarded from the good things in your life. Friends, you need a direct enjoyment of God. Enjoying God for who he is, not for what he gives you. It's kind of like having an uncle who gives you money at Christmas, um, but you don't actually have a relationship with this uncle. And I think this is often how we think about God, that we think, okay, John, I, I, he's giving me good stuff. I'm getting a good education. I've got my health. I've got friends. Um, things are going well. Uh, it's kind of like an uncle who, like, he gives me 100 bucks at Thanksgiving or Christmas. We're good. Like, I don't really want to know that uncle. It's kind of creepy. But he gives me 100 bucks, so we're good. And I think that's how we think God is, that we really think that the best we can get from him is what he's giving us right now. That, the, that he really is, if we got to know him, we just kind of wish that we'd stayed with the 100 bucks and smells bad, you know. Um, I don't think that's what God is like. Last week, I heard a story that is one of the most moving pieces of church history. Uh, A story of a man named Alan Gardiner, who was a British missionary who died in 1851 on an uninhabited island off the tip of South America. He and his crew all died one at a time of starvation. And his journals were recovered. And as he was dying, with no one around him and everyone else having died before him, this is what he wrote. 
He wrote down Psalm 3410, which says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but they that seek the Lord lack no good thing. And beneath it, he wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Got this man who's dying of starvation. His body's broken. He's dying. He wanted to be a missionary. He ended up on an uninhabited island. Like he, he failed. He didn't get to see anybody. There was no one there. He didn't achieve what he hoped for. <clears throat> Completely unsuccessful. According to a, like a modern standpoint, his life was a total failure and waste. But he, as he's dying, was overwhelmed with the goodness of God. See, you and I, we think that the goodness of God is an only inferred. It's, it's inferred from the good things he gives to us. I, I think that's how we do it. We say, God's been good to me. We mean good things are happening and I can infer that God is good. Alan Gardner must have gotten in contact with God. The real God. Not inferred contact, but, but close contact. He was overwhelmed with the goodness of God and rejoiced in God's goodness to him. In chapter 2, Habakkuk recounts his circumstances. He's surrounded by people who are filled with wickedness and injustice. And at the end of chapter 3, he's saying that things can get even worse. He's welcoming them to get worse. They can get so bad. It could be a summer without food, inevitable starvation. He's saying, bring on disaster because I know God's goodness. Not just in my mind, not just intellectual understanding of God's goodness, but experience. I've experienced his goodness not inferred from the things that he's given me, but tasted in his goodness. I've tasted him and his goodness directly. Enjoying God directly, not because of circumstances, not inferred enjoyment, but direct enjoyment. Habakkuk is showing us that true happiness is found in rejoicing in God's goodness. Um, I have a weekly FaceTime call with a Christian counselor, and he's in Dallas, and so we chat on the phone once a week, and then I pay him money. It's a great gig we've got. Um, he's wonderful. We meet every week, Friday at noon. And this past Friday when we got on the call, I, I wasn't so happy. Um, I really couldn't see beyond my own circumstances. COVID, university restrictions, my own sin. I was tired. And I was doing what I often do when things aren't going the way that I think that they should or that I want them to. I was asking him, what can I do to make things better? What am I supposed to do to fix it? What do I need to do? Do you ever do this? Of course you do. You're at Wake Forest because you're good at keeping your life under control. You're a master at having things under control. Here's what my counselor said to me. He said, the question, what am I supposed to be doing right now, is the wrong question. The question, who am I supposed to be right now, is a better question, but it's still the wrong question. He said, the right question is, who is God? This is the only question you need to answer. Too many, he went on to say, too many Christians waste too much energy worrying about whether or not they are doing God's will. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This means that if you give your attention to God and your energy and effort towards delighting in him, then you get to do whatever you want. Know God, become someone who delights in him, and then go do what you want and stop worrying about whether or not it's the right thing because that's the wrong question. But how? How do you do this, you might be asking. How do I delight in God? How do I rejoice in God? How do I have a, a direct experience in God that's not just inferred enjoyment? 
by resting in him, by resting in his goodness, remembering God's goodness, rejoicing in God's goodness, and resting in God's goodness. This, the, Habakkuk ends with him saying, God, the Lord, is my strength, and he makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on my high places. And what he's doing is Habakkuk is describing what it is like to rest in God's goodness. And in searching for a metaphor, he gives us this picture of a deer climbing a mountain. I've never seen a deer climb a mountain, but there's this great video on YouTube. It's a BBC nature video um, with 136 million views, so you know it's good. And it's a video of an ibex, which I had to look up. An ibex is a wild Eurasian mountain goat, so it's kind of like a deer. Well, it's like a deer. So this ibex is climbing this vertical, this stone uh, dam that's like just a sheer face. And he's walking with his little ibex feet up the side of this sheer wall. And the reason he does this is he does it monthly. He's got his little baby goat with him. And they're going to lick the water that trickles down because it has minerals in it that they need to survive. So they climb the sheer face of this wall their little hoofs just to lick the wall. It's, it's this great video, but it's terrifying because the, the camera angle has that it is, it is a sheer cliff, but the feet of this ibex, the feet of this deer are completely sure. He has this deer, I mean, you could say, he has an unwavering faith in his feet, like his feet are steady and they can support his weight on the razor's edge of these footholds. So why is this the metaphor that Habakkuk gives us? The most famous verse from Habakkuk comes in the second chapter. And if you remember, Habakkuk is crying out, how long, O Lord? And then God responds in chapter 2, verse 3, and he says, if it seems slow, keep waiting. I don't lie. And then in verse 4, God says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And this statement, the righteous shall live by faith, this statement is the linchpin of the book. It's, it's the linchpin of the Bible. It's the secret of happiness. The righteous shall live by faith. What does this mean? Righteous and righteousness are words that are not very familiar to us. Um, it's, it's an old word that means wholeness or enoughness. And this quest for wholeness, this quest for enoughness, feeling like you're enough, it's a universal quest. The longing to feel like you're enough, that you've got what it takes. This is what the Bible's talking about when it talks about being righteous. A friend of mine, Dave Zoll, wrote a book a couple years ago called Seculosity. It's a wonderful book. And in this book, he probes this question, claiming that this is the fundamental question to human existence that all of us are trying to answer all day long. How do I know that I'm enough? All of us are scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, put together enough, strong enough, funny enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, woke enough, good enough, smart enough. The list goes on and on because we believe intuitively that if we reach some benchmark in our minds, if we arrived, that if we got enough, that we'd actually be enough. But here's the problem with this. We never quite arrive at enough. And people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self that they're failing to become. And I've heard a religious version of this. It says, I used to feel like I'm not enough, but God tells me that I'm enough. So now I'm enough. And I'm sorry, but I just don't think this is right. Because in my experience, I am pretty confident that I'm not enough. And every honest human I've ever met knows that they're not enough either. The enoughness that you long for, the enoughness, enoughness that all of us long for, 
The Bible calls this righteousness. And God tells us through Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. Here's what this means. This means that the enoughness that you long for, and I'd argue the enough, that's where you're looking for your happiness, is whatever you're saying, if I have enough of that, that's where my happiness is. The enoughness that you long for is not something that you will ever be able to achieve, either through what you do or some feeling that you muster up inside of yourself. But that enoughness is actually a gift that you receive. It's a gift received by faith, a gift to rest in. Because the enoughness that you long for is Jesus himself. You all have heard me say this a thousand times. Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that you deserved. He took your not-enoughness on the cross in order to exchange it for his enoughness. He took your unrighteousness and gave you his righteousness. This is the goodness of God that he calls you to rest in. See, the Christian faith claims that God's goodness is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who was born into this world to be God's goodness with you, who suffered and died in our place on the cross to be God's goodness to you, who was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scripture to be God's goodness for you, who sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in you because he refuses to be God's goodness without you, who empowers the church by that same spirit because he longs to be God's goodness through you, and who will one day return to make all things new because his goodness is for you forever. True happiness comes by resting in God's goodness because true righteousness isn't something you can achieve. It's only something you receive. How? 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ was enough. He is enough. Perfectly righteous. On the cross, he took your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And living by faith means trust falling into him, trusting those little deer feet to carry you up the sheer wall of the dam, letting yourself collapse into the arms of Jesus who will catch you. True happiness comes through resting in God's goodness. All right, I'm wrapping up here. Um, those of you who have gotten to know me, you know that I'm a bit of an optimist, a little bit of an optimist. And y'all, I wish that I could stand up here and tell you that everything's going to be okay. I wish I could get up here and tell you that your life is going to work out just the way that you want it to, that you're going to get good grades and you're going to get a great job and you're going to marry the perfect person and you're going to have beautiful babies and nothing bad will ever happen to you. But I can't do that because that would be a lie. And I would actually hate for that to happen to you because if you live that life, the Instagram-worthy, shiny, perfect life, then you would always infer God's goodness and never have occasion for direct contact with the God who made you. The truth is, you may never get married. You may end up in a job that you hate. You may not be able to have children of your own. You may never have the body you think that will make you happy. Your family may fall apart. Whatever happens, your life will not turn out the way that you expect it to. But if your happiness is bound up in the goodness of God, if your one occupation is knowing and being known by the one who loves you and gave himself for you, then you can pray like Habakkuk. Bring on the famine, I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I want to end tonight by reading to you the last thing that was recorded in Alan Gardner's journal before he starved to death off the coast of South America. This is what he wrote. He said, I am happy day and night, hour by hour. Asleep or awake, I am happy beyond words. My joys are with him whose delights have always been with the sons of men. And my heart and spirit are in heaven with the blessed. I have felt how holy is that company. I have felt how pure are their affections. And I have washed me in the blood of the lamb. And I asked my Lord for the white garment that I too may mingle with the blaze of day and be amongst them one of the sons of light. I wish I could write more, but my fingers are aching with cold and I must wrap them up in my clothes. But my heart, my heart is warm, warm with praise, thanksgiving and love to God, my father and love to God, my redeemer. Friends, do you want a happiness that isn't contingent on your mood? A happiness that's invulnerable to the circumstances of your life? A happiness that will last beyond your successes and your failures? Friends, it is yours and Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made us for happiness and that the happiness you've made us for, you give to us in Jesus Christ. That it is a gift to be received by faith. And Lord, I pray for my friends as they hear this tonight. Lord, I pray that you would give them direct contact with you, that they might taste and see your goodness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, friends, God is good, and uh, he sends you out tonight under the banner of his love. Stand up. Hear this good word from his throne in heaven. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you into that great day. Amen.